0: When, uh, when David Fischler went to college, he joined the debate team. He's very bright and he loves to argue, and he's good at convincing other people about his point of view. Very persuasive. And the one topic that he loved to debate more than any other was the topic of Christianity. You see, David is a Jew and very proud of his Jewish heritage. Now, he's not a practicing Jew. Neither he nor anybody else in the family ever went to the synagogue and the Sabbath. Religion was just not a part of their life. But ethnically and culturally, he was a Jew and I'm proud of it. But no faith in God. Well, while David was at college, he fell in love with this young lady by the name of Mary Ann. And Mary Ann was a part of the debate team, too. And it was Mary Ann who convinced him, hey, David, if you really want to be effective at refuting the Christians, then like any good debater... If you want people to listen to you, you need to take time to listen to them. You need to hear their side of things. You need to understand where they're coming from. David Fischler, you need to read the Bible. He'd never done that before. And David thought, hey, I'm, I'm all about being fair, and I want to make sure I get the facts straight, and I'm not afraid of the truth, so he took up the challenge. He picked up a Bible, beginning with Genesis chapter 1, he read all the way through the Old Testament, which are the scriptures that all religious Jews use as the foundation for their faith. Well, when he got through reading the Old Testament, he thought, it all makes sense to me. The Jews got it right. The Christians got it wrong. But then he turned the page from Malachi chapter 4, the last book in the Old Testament. He turned over to Matthew chapter 1, the first book in the New Testament, and suddenly a light came on. He got the biggest surprise of his life as he began to read the genealogy of Jesus. You know, Abraham begat Isaac and Isaac begat uh, Jacob and Jacob begat Judah. As, as he's reading this family tree of Jesus, he is shocked to discover Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was a Jew? He didn't know that. You know, we're thinking to ourselves, duh, doesn't everybody know that? But David Fischler didn't. I, I mean, he just always assumed that Jesus was a Gentile, a non-Jew, because all the people who claimed to follow Jesus, at least all the Christians that he knew, they were Gentiles, so he thought that Jesus must be a Gentile too. But as he began to read through this long list of names that we have here in Matthew chapter 1, and he learned that Jesus came through the royal line of King David himself, the greatest king that Israel ever had, David was stunned. He said it was like scales falling off my eyes, and it stirred up a curiosity in his heart, and he wanted to know more. So he went back and he read the rest of Matthew, and he read the rest of the New Testament. And he ended up becoming a believer. And not only that, today David is preaching at a little church in Anna, Illinois. He ended up marrying that young lady at college, Mary Ann. And today, both David and Mary Ann serve that little church in Anna, Illinois. The one who once attacked the faith is now preaching the faith. And it's all because of what he learned in Matthew chapter 1. Now, I don't know about you, but that's kind of surprising to me. If, I, if I'm trying to lead somebody to Jesus and I want to convince them to put their trust in Him, I don't think I'd ever begin at Matthew chapter 1 as a place of, here's where you can learn what Jesus is all about. I mean, many of us, even as lifelong Christians, that's one part of the Bible we never bother to read. Or if we do read it, we just kind of glance at it. We skim through it quickly so we can get along onto something more interesting. Because what can you learn from a long list of names? I mean, here in Matthew, verses 1 to 16, we have 45 names covering 2,000 years of history. And many of these are people we've never heard of before. And many of them have names that we cannot even begin to pronounce. I mean, many of us feel like Nathaniel. Remember Nathaniel when his friend comes by one day, Philip, and he talks to him? I think we found him, the one, the Messiah. But then when he mentions how Jesus comes from this little village of Nazareth, boy, Nathaniel's skeptic. Nazareth? I I can't be. That podunk place? Nobody famous, nobody important comes from a tiny spot like that. It's just a hole in the wall. And you remember the comment that Nathaniel makes? He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Well, that's exactly the way many of us feel about Matthew chapter 1. Can anything good come out of a scripture like this? I mean, it's just a list of names, right? And yet, that's the text that God used to change the heart, to change the life of David Fischler. Maybe there's something more to that scripture than what we realize. I want us to take a look today, and I want us to begin at verse 17. Matthew, after he gives us this family tree... He lists all the names, and you get to verse 17, and Matthew says, I want to make some comments. I just showed you the family tree of Jesus. Now I want you to notice some things. Well, one of the things we notice right away is he left some names out. You know, you get down to verse 12, and we read about this guy's Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel. Blah, 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 blah. Okay? Anyway, from the time of Zerubbabel, and you come down to the time of Joseph, there in verse 16, we see how Matthew's listed nine people between the two. But then I turn over to Luke. Luke chapter 3, and he gives a genealogy of Jesus as well. And I notice between the time of Zerubbabel and the time of Joseph, he's got 18 people listed there, 18 in Luke's list, only 9. and Matthew's left 9 people out of the family tree. Why? And then I go back to the last part of verse 8 here in Matthew chapter 1, and I read how Jehoram was the father of Uzziah. Well, I go back to the Old Testament once again to kind of check things out, and I discover, no, he really wasn't the father. He was the great-great-grandfather of Uzziah. So again, here's Matthew leaving some people out of the family tree. He left out three generations between these two men. And I'm thinking, what's going on? Is Matthew trying to sneak something by us? No, no. Matthew's not being deceitful. See, if I was a Jew living back in the first century, this would all make perfect sense to me. I would know. I would recognize right away, especially when you're reading something like a genealogy, and you come across this phrase, the father of. It doesn't always mean that he was actually the father of the next person mentioned on the list. Many times that phrase could be translated the ancestor. Same phrase can be translated either way. It just all depends upon the context. Not only that, as a first century Jew, I, I would appreciate that Matthew wasn't the only one who left names out of a genealogy. There were many people who did that back in that day and time. See, in Bible times, a genealogy was like a resume. You know, here I am applying for a job, and because the people in that company don't know who I am, I need to introduce myself to them. So I put a resume together and on that resume, I'll list all the schools that I've attended and here's all the degrees that I've earned. This is my educational background and here's how that education has prepared me for this job that I'm now applying for. And on that resume, I'm going to list all the jobs I've had, all the different places I've worked and all the different kinds of experiences I've had in each one of those jobs. And look at all the things I've accomplished. Do you see what I've done? Do you see what I've achieved? Do you see why you need to hire me? Well, back in the ancient world, when you wanted to impress somebody, you wanted to earn their respect, you would hand them your genealogy. Look at some of the great people I'm connected to. And in the interest of time, rather than just list all the people you have in your family tree, you would often just condense the list and highlight the most famous and most important people on the list. Hey, notice, i got some good bloodlines. I come from a great heritage. I have great connections. Well, so what we learn from this is back in the ancient world, a genealogy was always more than just a list of names. It was a way of giving a testimony. It was a way of telling a story. It was a way of delivering a message to others. And that's exactly what Matthew is doing here. Matthew has carefully arranged the names in this family tree because he says, I want to tell you something. I want to show you something important about Jesus. So notice what he says, verse 17. Matthew says, I've arranged the names here in three parts. And notice in the part one, we've got 14, 14 generations from the time of Abraham to the time of David. then in the second part of the story, we've got 14 generations from the time of David to the time of the exile to Babylon. And then in the third part of the story, we've got 14 names from the time of the exile to the time of the Messiah. See, he has given this family tree a particular shape. Have you ever gone over to Europe and you you walk into one of these magnificent cathedrals? Or you can see it sometimes here in the United States as well as some of those grand old church buildings. Uh, But as you walk into the building, immediately you're filled with this sense of awe. You're in this huge place. And immediately you just stare at the size and beauty of this church building. And and like I say, there's just a sense of, wow, this sense of awe. But then you notice something else. The architect, the one who designed this, he obviously had an agenda in mind. That's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. I mean, you can just tell by the way he designed this building, he's trying to say something to us. Because you notice this, as you walk into the building, this, this sanctuary where everybody gathers to worship on a Sunday morning, this huge room, it has a particular shape to it. It's in the shape of a cross. You ever notice that? You come into the back of the building as you walk from the back to the front. Here's this long extended aisle with pews on both sides. And then you get to the front of the buildings and there's wings on either side with additional seating. And then beyond the wings, you have the platform with the pulpit and the baptistry and the communion table. Just the shape of the auditorium resembles the shape of the cross. And you're being reminded just by the very way this building has been constructed. This building is not like any other building in town. There are things that are going to happen here that won't happen anywhere else. When you come to a place like this, you come here for a reason. You come here to remember Jesus and celebrate what he did for us on a cross. Well, that's Matthew. He's got an agenda. He shapes this family tree here because he's got an agenda in mind. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. He carefully arranges the names of this family tree in three different parts, three different paragraphs. It's almost like it's three different time periods. And here's Matthew saying, hey, walk with me. Let's just trace the history of the nation of Israel and watch how that history moves. And it's almost like a line graph. And this particular graph is in the shape of a capital N. You've got three parts. It starts at the bottom, very meager beginnings, and you're thinking to yourself, man, what's ever going to come of this? And then it begins to rise, and it reaches this glorious crescendo. And everything looks wonderful and bright, and you're ready to celebrate when all of a sudden... Part two, it takes a turn for the worse, and it just plummets down, 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 until it begins to bottom out, and you think, oh, it's hopeless, it's over, but it's not. And then you come to the third part of the story, and it rises up until it reaches its ultimate culmination, there in Jesus, as he's born in Bethlehem. So watch how this works. Verse two, at least the way Matthew does his family tree for Jesus, he begins with Abraham. So, again, we start at the bottom. Meager beginnings. We've got one man, one person, Abraham. And you remember, this isn't looking good at this point because when God first introduces himself to Abraham, he's a pagan man living in a pagan city. Uh, Joshua 24 says it's a city of idol worshippers. And he's not even a Jew. He's a Gentile. This is the Ur of the Chaldeans. He's a Chaldean, meaning he's outside of the covenant. And he would have remained there had it not been for God. It was God who brought him in. See, Israel didn't get started because one day Abraham woke up and said, hey, I got a brilliant idea. I'm going to start a new nation today. No, it had nothing at all to do with Abraham. It was God who created Israel. Israel wouldn't have existed as a nation at all had it not been for the Lord. And that's not just true for them. It's true for us, too. So we start with the Gentile. And then the other interesting thing you notice is this first list, this first set of 14 names, verses 2 to 6. There are four women mentioned in this list. That's not typical for a first century genealogy. and If you're a Jewish Christian, hey, what's going on here? Here's Matthew getting our attention. And there's all different kinds of things you could say about those four ladies. But one of the things you note is they're all four Gentiles. What are all these Gentiles doing on this this list? Well, you remember what God said to Abraham at the very beginning of his journey? As Abraham begins to walk with God, Genesis chapter 12, God said, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. But I'm going to bless you so you can bless others. So that through you, all peoples, all nations on earth can be blessed. So from this very meager beginning, just one man, one person. Yet here's God with this grand plan in mind. And he begins to do something mighty and marvelous. And so God's people begin to multiply. And then God brings them into a promised land. And the kingdom is established. And as it's established, that kingdom begins to rise in power until you get down to the first part of verse six to the time of David. And notice how David is identified, not just David, but King David. Because at that point in history, Israel has become the most glorious nation in all the world. You're thinking, wow, this is great. Then we come to the second part of the story, verses, verse, last part of verse 6 down to verse 11. And everything takes a turn for the worst. There's a steep decline. God's people rebel. They turn their backs on the Lord. The nation is split in two. And eventually, because the people just won't listen, They have to be judged and punished God himself under his direction God's people are going to be dispersed first with the Assyrians then with the Babylonians God's people are taken away from their home and they now live in a foreign land they now live in exile and it looks like everything is just bottomed out and that's not just true for them that happens to us as well one of the signs that you've lost hope is when you start to become cynical about everything you know. Your heart was broken by the love of your life and now because of that, because you're so scarred by that that experience, you find it hard to trust anybody anymore. You're afraid to get close to anybody. Or you threw your heart into that job. You gave that company the 20 best years of your life and what kind of thanks do you get? They laid you off. They took away your job and they took away your pension too. And now because of the anger and bitterness, you are convinced nobody cares. Oh, they may say they do, but the truth is they're all in it for themselves. Or maybe you tried to, Serve the community as a police officer, and you take great pride in your job. But after years and years of seeing nothing but the worst side of humanity, your heart gets jaded. And now it's hard to believe the best about anybody anymore. See, it's hard not to be cynical when it looks like everything is bottomed out. But then we read verse 12, third part. And it begins this way, after the exile. The story's not over. God's not through with Israel. God's not through with you. So, verses 12 down to 16, we read about Zerubbabel. And we remember as we read our Old Testaments how it was in his time. Here's God at work. He brings a remnant back to the promised land. And the temple is rebuilt. and The sacrifices are restored. And, and in a very eager way, people begin to anticipate the coming of the Messiah. There's this hope of restoration. And that hope reaches a breakthrough moment when Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Now, that's just one small example of what Matthew's doing here with this family tree of Jesus. There are a lot of other details that you could point out as well. For example, when you read through the book of Matthew, you notice how when he talks about Jesus, he loves to use this word king. He'll use that word more than any other writer in the New Testament. And then another thing about Matthew, when he talks about Jesus, he loves to refer to him as the son of David. And again, he'll use that expression more than anybody else. Well, you see both of those elements here in the family tree. Look at this, verse 1. Look at how he begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why? Why does he put David before Abraham? We know Abraham lived a 1,000 years before David was ever born, and Matthew knows that too. So what's going on? I think he's trying to get our attention. I think he's trying to say something to us. Hey, of all the names I've got mentioned here in this family tree, here's the name I want you to notice the most. Watch for David. You remember God made a promise to David that one day one of his descendants would be a king unlike any other kind of king, a king who would sit on his throne forever. And the king that God was talking about was Jesus. Now, here's why that's significant. David was the prototype that God used, the prototype for all the other kings of Israel. He was the standard by which everybody else was measured. You want to be a leader of God's people? You've got to be a leader like him. Look at David. And yet as great as David was, you get down here to the last part of verse 6, and you see he was far from the ideal. This guy had flaws, horrible flaws. So even David himself becomes a sign pointing to our need for a better king, our need for a greater king, and we find that better king, that greater king, Jesus. So look at the contrast. David went out and he conquered nations, but he did it with a sword and an army. Jesus conquers the hearts of men with a cross and the grace of God. When David went out and he fought and he won the battles, yeah, he won, but that meant everybody on the other side ended up losing. But when Jesus fought the greatest battle of all at the cross, not only did he win, now he makes it possible for everybody else to win too. And when Jesus wins, he wins for all eternity. You see, what we're learning What we're learning from this family tree, the key thing about everything, uh, the people here, you go back to the Old Testament, you read about every one of the people we find in this list, and you'll find, just like David, they're all flawed, horribly flawed. So when Jesus joins himself to this family tree, he's not coming here to praise his ancestors. He's coming here to save his ancestors. You remember what the angel said to Joseph here at the very end of Matthew chapter 1, and you shall call this baby Jesus. And here's why. Because he will save his people from their sins. I'll finish this way. There's only one time in the Bible we ever see God in a hurry. Only one time when you find God running. And why? Why is God in a hurry? Suddenly in a hurry. Why is God running? Well, he's in a hurry to forgive. It's Luke chapter 15. God is the father in the parable the prodigal son. And he's running out to embrace the boy, the boy who just stepped out of a pig pen. Do you remember? Here's the kid who left home and traveled to the far country, a place where he didn't belong. And he squanders his inheritance and loses it all. And he makes a mess out of everything. And now when the kid finally comes back home, he comes back as a complete and total failure. And yet, how does God respond to that? He hurries out to meet him. He hurries out because he wants to be with him. He hurries out to hug him and hold him. He hurries out to embrace him with his love. And why? To endorse his sin? No. He wants to put a new robe on him and a new ring on his finger. He wants to give him a new status, a new standing. He's in a hurry to get him home so he can give him a new life to live. That's what we're reading here in Matthew chapter 1. This is not our story, the story of us and our desire to be with God. No, this is God's story. The story of his desire to be with us, we who are sinners and losers and failures. And the reason why Jesus joins our family tree, not to praise us and pat us on the back. No, he joins the tree so he can save us and set us free from our sin. The only time you see God in a hurry is when he's in a hurry to forgive. And trust me, he is still in a hurry to do that for you for me the question is this will you let him do that will you let God embrace you today will you let God restore your hope will you let God give you a new life to live let's pray